Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I am Chris Dyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Well, heck yeah, you are. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, we are remotely together again. How was the la- how was the end of 2023 for you? The end of 2023 was lovely, and welcome to 2024. I feel good about it. You feel how what what's your fearless forecast for the new year? Uh, I, I don't have a forecast yet. But I mean, personally, you feeling good? Are you going into feeling this? Feeling great. Feeling great? Feeling great. You're looking good. You're feeling good. You're ready to go. Everybody's healthy and employed. That's a good place to I, start. I have to update our listeners who haven't been checking the YouTube channel that I think your bags of meat are paying dividends. Well, I mean, I am less fat. Looking that is true. Smelt. Though I did I did a lot of good work over the holidays. There's no no doubt that for Christmas and for New Year's, I ate everything. And including, by the way, a pizza. On New Year's Day, I ate a pizza and I regret nothing. It was absolutely fantastic. What was the best thing you ate over the break? Oh, well, I, I guess my boys and I have a Christmas tradition of making eggs Benedict on for breakfast and that was extraordinarily good. But of course, like all good holiday traditions, seasoned with nostalgia and connection tradition. So that was very good. And the lovely Jessica and I, for New Year's Eve, went to a, a dinner that had like 20 courses. And it was, I felt it was, it had a, it had a real uh, decline of the Roman Empire energy which I enjoyed extraordinarily, and that was a lot of fun. Well, my mom is a phenomenal baker, and we were with my parents for a week, and she made these, like, oatmeal cookie bars Mm. with caramel and chocolate and an oatmeal top, and they were called Carmelita bars. Ooh. They were out of control delicious. I think Carmelita Bars has got the single moving up the pop charts right now. Uh, they were so good. But Chris, we gotta we gotta talk about Harvard. And we, in the in the spirit of full disclosure, this is not animated by the fact that you went to Yale. This is not animated by the fact that I went to Yale. As you know what? I would actually be much happier if the story was about Yale. As I've delighted in torturing my alma mater Uh, for all of it, all the ways that it is, it is aired. So I would be pleased to talk about this story if it was about Yale. There was fire. But, you know, we've, I think, talked a lot on this podcast about how the right has really excelled in the realms of opinion, talk radio and cable television right-wing talk radio has always outperformed left-wing talk radio and Fox News still outrates its competitors on CNN and MSNBC 
And while that has been good for the right, it, you know, I, I always has say it's it? necessary. Yeah. Well, it's necessary, but not sufficient. And I think where the right has really lagged and, you know, where I've where I where I work, have devoted my energies in my career is to doing real shoe leather reporting. And I think that is what brought down Harvard University President Claudine Gay, who resigned on Tuesday, January 2nd. We're recording this on Thursday. And that followed a sort of drip drip of stories over the holiday break published by the Harvard Crimson. One was an op-ed by an anonymous student, a member of Harvard College's Honor Council, who wrote, this person wrote, I vote on plagiarism cases at Harvard College, gays getting off easy. And a couple of other students under their own names wrote that they believe she should go. And so I think Harvard's strategy was just sort of to make it to the holidays and hope that this story abated about her plagiarism, which, of course, followed on her congressional testimony. And it really didn't, in part because the Harvard Crimson continued public publishing pieces. But the and student I, and on I, the honor... I, I, I do think it's worth noting, and this has been a theme for us for some time now, student journalists making a difference. And we saw at Stanford, we saw at Northwestern, and now we see at Harvard the pressure and scrutiny applied by student journalists bringing down powerful figures. And I think that's to be applauded. So the Harvard Crimson published this op-ed by this anonymous student, a member of the Honor Council, who wrote, in my experience, when students omit quotation marks and citations, as President Gay did, the sanction is usually one term of probation, a permanent mark on a student's record. A student on probation is no longer considered in good standing, disqualifying them from opportunities like fellowships and study abroad programs. Good standing is also required to receive a degree. What is striking about the allegations of plagiarism against President Gay is that the improprieties are routine and pervasive. She's accused of plagiarism in her dissertation and at least two of her 11 journal articles. Two sentences from the acknowledgement section of her dissertation even seem to have been copied from another work. And then on the evening of January 1st, the Free Beacon reported six more instances of plagiarism in her work, and she, uh, which included almost verbatim, you know, copying of footnotes from another scholar. And she resigned midday on, on January 2nd. And what's amazing to me in the coverage of this is, and, and you can kind of forgive the press a little bit for this, but is the attempt to portray this as a campaign, to, as a coordinated attack. And we see this in, in the Associated Press's coverage where they say, plagiarism charges downed Harvard's president. A conservative attack helped to fan the outrage. The original headline of that piece was, Harvard president's resignation highlights new conservative weapon against colleges, colon, plagiarism. Woof. And they want to focus on everything else aside from the reporting, the original reporting that brought her down. Now, the reason I say that I forgive them a little bit is that there are folks out there, including Christopher Rufo at the Manhattan Institute, who are out there saying this was a coordinated attack and we coordinated and we put up, we pulled all the strings and 
we organized, you know, hearings on the Hill and donors, and it was all coordinated. The problem is it is complete BS. It's BS. So if these reporters were actually chasing the facts down and trying to figure out what happened, they would realize that there's no factual basis on which to say that. But they are so reluctant to credit just the hard work of doing the reporting. I, I think, I mean, the, the Associated Press, of, of course, my, my favorite part of the Associated Press, Christopher Rufo, uh, a conservative activist who helped orchestrate the effort against gay celebrated her departure as a win in this campaign against elite institutions of higher education. On X, formerly Twitter, he wrote, all caps, scalped, as if gay was a trophy of violence, invoking a gruesome practice taken up by white colonists who sought to eradicate Native Americans and also used by some tribes against their enemies. The, I don't, I don't know Christopher Rufo, and I don't know how much he orchestrated this, but the the digging hard to make this he did not i can t having played a role in this i can tell you you know i've never met this person or spoken to him yes and if you're if one of your sources is people dudes are saying on twitter here's some stuff dudes are saying on twitter meh, it's it's a little dubious but the the effort the the grinding effort to make this racial is well encapsulated here here's a couple things I know. The controversy surrounding Gay and her testimony extended her lifespan as the president of Harvard. It did not shorten it because I believe that without those, without that controversy, right, that these allegations would have been sufficient to force her out. It made it harder for the trustees at Harvard to jettison her because she was involved in this imbroglio, because this was going on. And I've, I've seen many people in many pieces make the point about, you know, they're coming after black women. This is what they're doing to black women. We, I, we mentioned earlier what happened to the president of Stanford, who was caught in a similar situation and he was dumped. We, this is, this is normal and, and, and accusations of plagiarism damaging the reputations and careers of academics is not a new weapon from conservatives. So the, the this is a, well, look, her piece on this, she wrote in the New York Times. Yeah, she's making it racial and, and we'll get to her piece. But it is worth noting that the that the white president of the University of Pennsylvania resigned before her. But, but Claudine Gay has made this racial. And I do think, it, in fact, Part of it was racial in that I think the fact that she was a symbol, Harvard made much ado about the fact that she was the first black female president of the university and she was a symbol for the school. And I think that 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 prolonged her lifespan yes. um, in the presidency after these accusations made it more difficult for them to part ways with her. And it was racial in that regard, not in the ways that she is saying so she wrote in an op-ed for the New York Times yesterday, what just happened at Harvard is bigger than me. And she writes, as I depart, I must offer a few words of warning. The campaign against me, again, using the word campaign, was about more than one university and one leader. This was merely a single skirmish in a broader war to unravel public faith in pillars of American society. Campaigns of this kind often start with attacks on education and expertise, 
because these are the tools that best equip communities to see through propaganda. Woof. But such campaigns don't end there. Trusted institutions of all types, from public health agencies to news organizations, will continue to fall victim to coordinated attempts to undermine their legitimacy and ruin their leaders' credibility. For the opportunists driving cynicism about our institution, no single victory or toppled leader exhausts their zeal. My goodness. My goodness. The people who, the, the, the Jacobinism of American public life today. So everybody wants to be a revolutionary. Everybody wants to be an insurgent. And then when they get power, they don't want to be insurgent anymore. And for Gay to cast herself as a pillar, a stalwart of maintaining institutional strength, whose presidency, whose rise was predicated on the idea of overthrowing the old order. It's just, look, obviously this is a no class move on her part. She says, she says in the lead of her op-ed, the wrenching but necessary decision to resign as Harvard's president. If you're doing it for the good of the institution and you care so much about the institution, don't write this. Don't do it, right? You're not helping the institution by, so you, you cloak yourself in the, you're part of, you know, one of the optimates you are, you are the, this, this Solon in the, the world of these institutions and you're falling on your sword for the good of the institution. And then you throw it all away immediately by saying it was unfair. And if she was going to say anything, what would you say? I am sorry for my failings as an academic. I apologize for the harm that I caused. And then you just go away. But she does the opposite. Beyond that, she apologized for her testimony before Congress. She apologized and admitted she screwed up. She has submitted corrections to her thesis and other academic works. So she has admitted that she screwed up. So I'm not sure on what grounds she thinks she should have kept her job get, given those things. It's pathetic. That's a big Let's woof. See. That's a big woof it's, from me. It's pathetic. And, and that is damaging to the institution. Yeah. And if you want to encourage confidence in institutions, don't use your own failings as an opportunity to reposition yourself grandstand and, and try to make yourself into a victim. If you care, then just t- take your L. Just take your L and go away. For reporters, by the way, you know, it, it was conservative reporting that did this, you, that that pushed her out. I believe there are many open questions here, most of them relating to the Harvard Corporation and the men and women, the the 11 men and women, Gay, Gay was the 12th member of this corporation that governs Harvard University. These are titans of business, of law, of academia, the former president of Princeton, the former president of Amherst College, the former CEO of American Express, et cetera, et cetera. There are many open questions. I don't believe this story is over. In fact, I believe this went the story went far beyond Claudine Gay and her tenure there. And those questions are, you know, these people retained a top dog defamation firm when the allegations of plagiarism surfaced. They said that she had their unanimous support before they had fully investigated these allegations. 
They threatened the New York Post and threatened to sue them for immense damages if they published a story detailing the allegations. And I think there remains fertile ground for reporting on this story and these 11 people who remain on the governing body of Harvard University, one of the most influential organizations and institutions in American life. Word. Should we move to 2024? Let's do it. Over to you, Chris. Well, this is a good, if, if there are any journalists listening, this piece, this triple byline piece by Maeve Reston, Hannah Knowles, and Merrill Cornfield in the Washington Post is a great object lesson. Led by Trump, GOP candidates take polarizing stances on race and history. Okay, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's certainly something to work with here. There's certainly premise. And then they have the three examples. Remember, for a trend story, your editor will tell you, you've got to have three examples. So number one, Donald Trump, immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country. Gross. Okay. Ron DeSantis. So they pull back the old Ron DeSantis, where he was citing the state's African-American studies curriculum about the the ancillary benefits to enslaved people as they learned crafts and trades. And then Nikki Haley and her blunder on the causes of the Civil War, telling an audience in New giving giving an answer for a South Carolina audience to a New Hampshire audience was a mistake. Okay, so there's something that you could work with here. So this extraordinarily long piece, I mean extraordinarily long piece big, huge piece. I looked through it and I looked for what our friend Andrew Sullivan calls a to be sure paragraph, right? So if you want to have credibility with your audience, you have to acknowledge the weaknesses of your argument, right? If your premise is that Republicans are cuckoo bananas racists, then you have to make the case to people who might be skeptical of your argument, in this case, to Republican readers. So what you would do would be you would put a paragraph in there about how Democrats have sometimes been guilty of similar things, right? How the post, the Black Lives Matter movement aired by false claims that have been made by Democrats about race, about the many things that Joe Biden has said you, you don't have to go all the way back to. They want to put you all back in chains, but certainly you can find lots of examples of Democrats using divisive rhetoric on race and and repeating untruths. But they don't do it. At no point in this whole long piece do these three writers say, now, now, I know Democrats do some bad things too, but look at how much different the case is with Republicans. Instead of writing this, look, this is analysis, not reporting. Instead of writing analysis, that might be persuasive to someone, they omit and and thereby elide and don't persuade anybody, but just suck up to this is audience capture writ large. And the and I only bring it up to point out the necessity of a to be sure paragraph. If you want to write persuasively, if you're writing to an audience on the left, you've got to say, now wait, Republicans do it too. If you're writing to an audience on the right, you've got to talk about Democrats. Can I also add, relatedly, it struck me in the same is true of the Claudine Gay op-ed and much of the reporting around her resignation, where it was easy to seize on 
you know, there were a lot, there, there were, I get, I take it because I, I didn't go into these anonymous message boards um, with sort of academic gossip on it. And people said, no, there are racist comments in there. I'm sure that was true, but they focused on, you know, the worst arguments, the, the racists in these comment boards to say, I was a subject of a racist campaign, as opposed to entertaining the strongest and best cases against right. her. And I think the same is true in these arguments about, you know, the Republican Party is a racist cesspool. They entertain the sort of weakest, lowest hanging fruit, as opposed to also grappling with the best counter arguments. Yeah, this is where we have to follow the Krauthammer standard. And the Krauthammer standard, as Brett Stevens put it, is to make the strongest argument for the opposing side and still defeat that argument. This is the the there are urgent problems related to race and racial attitudes in the United States. And certainly it's fair to say that on the right in America today, there is a lot of weird business going on. Fine. But if you want to be persuasive when you do that, you cannot erect straw men. You have to engage in real argumentation. And that that helps, right? And writers are afraid to do it. Commentators are afraid to do it because it's ingrained in them not to give the other side an inch. You don't want to give them anything. Don't grant them any presupposition. That's wrong. That is, that's what an insecure writer does. What a secure writer does is acknowledge weaknesses in their own arguments and, and the strengths in their opponents. Chris, there were a couple of great profiles, one in Politico and one in the New York Times over the holidays about John Fetterman. Oh, wait, before um, you do that, before oh, you sorry, do that, sorry. no, no, before you Go do ahead. that, before you do that, I'm sorry. And I, I feel especially bad about doing it because it's a piece of my own in the dispatch, but no, I, no, I now feel especially bad for stomping on you. Hardly. So Nikki Haley, here's a phenomenon that happens in the political press. You, the, 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 uh, so and I should point out, it happens for Democrats too. It happens for Democrats in the conservative media, and it happens for all candidates to a certain degree. But basically, the less likely you are to win, the more flattering and credulous the coverage of you will be. So if you can get in at all, and we we saw this with Haley. I don't know whether we talked about it here. We saw this with Haley, and I wrote about it at the time. She floated on Fox one afternoon, the idea of mandatory ending, the federal government ending online anonymity, which I understand the arguments in favor of, but constitutionally represents a massive disruption and would need, would need serious thought. And she offered it unseriously and she got torched. And the reason she got torched was because she was still running like somebody who was at 3%, right? She was using the Ramaswamy effect which is when you're low in the polls, people are trying to, you know, hear from candidates. They're trying to get in the mix, especially when the Republican frontrunner isn't doing anything, that you you meet a lower bar. And as she found with that, okay, now the, the bar is raised. Now, and there was a, a piece in, and I believe it was Business Insider, but it went around a bunch of places where Nikki Haley mixed up the names of a University of Iowa basketball star and Caitlin Collins, University of Iowa basketball star's first name oh, right, right. Is, Kate, is Caitlin. I forget what her last name is. So did Nikki Haley. And she, thinking about probably an interview that she had done or was about to do, said Caitlin Collins instead of the correct name. 
and then you get one of these little mini feeding frenzies. The degree of difficulty for Haley, and look, there's plenty of polling now that say that that says that she is eclipsed Ron DeSantis and that she is in potential striking distance to finish second in both Iowa and New Hampshire, and that she has had this extraordinary success and she's done all of this stuff. But now the press, uh, so I, I think we can call it the Santorum effect, which is Rick Santorum couldn't get much of a favorable hearing on MSNBC when he was leading the polls or, or succeeding in the Republican nominating process in 2012. But when he was basically out, when he had been knocked out but was still running, they would put him on all the time. Fox does the same thing with, you know, I, I assume Dean Phillips will soon be granted a, a two hours of airtime on Fox because that's the that's the game, right? If you're attacking your own party or you're a nuisance to your own party, you're going to get favorable attention on the other side. So what Nikki Haley is currently experiencing is <clears throat> what happens when you go from these Republicans, well, they could they could have a better choice, a woman, uh, a woman of color, a, a normal, responsible Republican, but they're passing it up to have Donald Trump, geez Louise. As soon as you get into the game, all of a sudden it's like, well, actually, she's a racist also. And actually, yep, now that I now that I think about it, DeSantis already went through this and Mitt Romney went through it. John McCain went through it. If Nikki Haley is going to go the distance, the the prevailing she will do so with the prevailing winds in the media having changed substantially. I also think to your piece, Haley is just not as strong when she is speaking extemporaneously. Like I think with these debates, she performed really well because you can prepare for them and you can you can prepare answers and answer the questions any way you want. So you can go up there like being a hundred percent prepped. And it's not quite the same as when you're you get tossed questions when you're not expecting them in a crowd and she's just not quite as good off the cuff. How, so, and, and here's the, the, the eternal challenge of being an insurgent presidential candidate. So how do you resist the urge to give the people what they want, right? So her error in New Hampshire was, as I said, giving a South Carolina answer because the South Carolinians are very sensitive about the fact that they started the Civil War because they don't want that to be true. And if you're talking to a South Carolina audience, as she has been doing since 2000 and well, before 2010, she's been in, she was in South Carolina politics starting 20 years ago. If you're talking to an audience in South Carolina, you're going to give them the soft soap, right? You're going to say, well, it's complicated and blah, 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 blah. In New Hampshire, what you say is the institution of human chattel slavery was an abhorrence to God and man, and it was the original sin in the founding that the founders themselves knew one day would have to be reconciled. It would have to be dealt with. And the, the paid as, and you would quote Lincoln and you would say until every lash of every drop of blood drawn by the lash is repaid with one drawn by the sword. And you would, that's what you'd say in New Hampshire. Her, she reverted to code, right? She went back to her source code, which is mealy mouth this so that you don't upset South Carolinians. But it points to the, the, the problem that she will have to overcome, which is the instinct to be too politic, to, to hit too many bank shots and not sound, at least, like she is speaking from the heart and saying what she believes. That's what, 
it walking that tightrope between not becoming a punchline, not not overswinging, and and avoiding being too pandering is is a very hard one. That's why very few people, as it turns out, end up becoming president. All right, is it is it Fetterman time now? It's Fetterman time. It's Fetter okay. time. There were a couple of great profiles of him. One in Politico and another in the, in the New York Times that focused on his disclaiming the title of progressive that he embraced when he ran for Senate a couple of years ago. So Politico has John Fetterman isn't the politician you you thought he'd be and he doesn't care. And this is an interview with him. And so Politico says, we talked about this a few months ago and you told me that you thought Biden would win Pennsylvania and win the overall election. But things have gotten worse for him since. Uh, Trump is now ahead in many polls, and he says he uh, he still believes that Biden will win Pennsylvania. Um, but he's asked a, a lot, and a lot of this is focused on his stance on Israel, where he has draped himself in the Israeli flag and at, at a pro-Israel rally and uh, taunted pro pro Hamas protesters, anti-Israel pro Hamas protesters, and and. They ask him, are you surprised that so many progressives disagree with you on Israel? And he says, I mean, of course, I expected that there will always be a diversity of opinions and that as long as things go, that the Democratic caucus might splinter more. I would be the last man standing to be absolutely there on the Israeli side on this with no conditions. Without destroying Hamas, there will be no enduring peace and a stable two state solution. So I, I love this. I love the story of John Fetterman. And just for people's context, after John, John Fetterman had a stroke after the had his stroke after the Pennsylvania Democratic primary. And I said at the time that his wife and his campaign advisors, the, his the paid politicos who worked for him, should have pushed him to step aside because the Democrats had a good runner up. The state Democratic Party could have appointed Connor Lamb, congressman from Western Pennsylvania, from the same side of the state who was a moderate Democrat and would have run well or better, certainly better after the stroke, but probably better pre-stroke in a general election than Fetterman. But the argument for Fetterman running was that he had to be there because Pennsylvania deserved a bold progressive, that he had to, it, was, it wasn't acceptable for Connor Lamb's mealy mouth moderation that they needed a bold progressive. Then he, after his bout with depression for which he's hospitalized and his struggle to regain full function, guess where we find John Fetterman? I, I guess I would have to call him a moderate Democrat now, right? Certainly he is a, on this one issue, on the right side of his party. And the, I don't, I'm going to give John Fetterman a, a lot of credit here that when you go through a stroke and you go through depression, you come out on the side as a different person. But it's just good. It's interesting for me to see how the 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 arguments of the moment in politics quickly fade. And my friend Annie Carney writes in this great profile in The New York Times under Fetterman breaking with the left on Israel rejects progressive label. She she writes this is Fetterman talking. I don't think it's unreasonable to have a secured border, Mr. Fetterman said in the interview. I would never put dreamers in harm's way or support any kind of cruelty or mass expulsion of hundreds of thousands of people. But it's a reasonable conversation to talk about the border. So he's doing this on more issues than just on Israel. And and 
she writes, it all marks a shift in Mr. Fetterman's image, even if the progressive label was never a perfect fit for him. In 2018, Mr. Sanders, this is Bernie Sanders, called Mr. Fetterman an outstanding progressive as he endorsed his campaign for lieutenant governor. Fetterman backed Bernie Sanders' presidential bid in 2016 and used to introduce himself as a Democrat and a progressive. So this is a big shift for him. And his moral clarity, I think, on on Israel Gaza has been has been wonderful to see. This is also a good SNR alert and a strange new respect alert. Yes. Republicans who spent and and people on the right who spent a lot of time just roasting, abusing John Fetterman. And by the way, I I still think he should not have I still think he should not have served. I think that was in error. But these people who just poured out scorn on John Fetterman now have to say well, you know, now that I think about it, it's sort of like what Joe Manchin got to experience, what Kristen Cinema, what other apostate Democratic senators have gotten to experience, which is people who once said that you were the devil incarnate now say, well, you know, that guy makes a lot of good points. So happy ha- enjoy your strange new respect, Mr. Federer. Up next, we have the the new Jeffrey Epstein documents, which I have to admit, having been so mired in Harvard over the past week, I paid no attention to. But what do we need to know? We need to know that seldom do you get to see a media feeding frenzy of the, of this magnitude. The amount of coverage that lists to be released because the judge set, I believe, January 3rd as the date where the list of names, and I assume this is in Ghislaine Maxwell's trial, but the the presiding judge which who had ordered the the list of names that emerged from the Epstein investigation to be sealed said that they would be unsealed and now they they're coming out some are still sealed the name obviously Bill Clinton you know i mean come on that we knew prince andrew yeah we knew that one the only one that surprised me david copperfield which, of course, I hadn't heard his name before, but of course, he's David Copperfield. Michael Jackson, a, another individual that you don't say. I can't believe that Michael Jackson had any unsavory associations. So I have not seen, and maybe I will be corrected, I have not seen any names so far that were, and Trump is on there too. I have not seen any names that were like, I can't believe that it happened. But the buildup of expectations around this list was such that all of these media outlets that had been hyping it for weeks. And it was like, yeah, it's mostly stuff you already know. Eh, it's mostly things you already know. I agree with that. Now time to talk about the media business. Oh, yeah. We have the, the New York Times suing OpenAI and Microsoft over AI use of copyrighted work. And the Times writes about this, that the Times is the first major American media organization to sue the companies, the creators of ChatGPT and other popular AI platforms over copyright issues associated with its written works. The lawsuit filed in federal district court in Manhattan contends that millions of articles published by the Times were used to train automated chat box that now compete with the news outlet as a source of reliable information. Besides seeking to protect intellectual property, the lawsuit by the Times casts ChatGPT and other AI systems as potential competitors in the news business. When chatbots are asked about current events or other newsworthy topics, they can generate answers that rely on journalism by the Times. 
The newspaper is concerned that readers will be satisfied with a response from a chatbot and decline to visit the Times website, reducing web traffic that can be translated into advertising and subscription revenue. This will be a really interesting lawsuit. Yeah, and we are going to, much like the Sullivan case with the New York Times, we're going to get to see a bunch of new case law made around AI and this technology. And I don't pretend to know what the what the judicious, prudent decision in this case is. But this is, you know, uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about changing what came before. But the truth is what comes next will continue to rewrite the history and continue to change the emphasis. And this is a huge frontier. This is a big deal. Chris, this was hilarious. Fox News, Jesse Waters had on a psychic. She was and she looks exactly like you think she'd look. And they asked her to predict Trump's 2024. And she had a big stack of cards. And should we should we play play the clip? She pulled out a Grim Reaper. Let's hear it. Paula, for you to give me a reading Hmm. on President Trump. Just the one card. One card. One card. Let's do just one card. We like that one. Uh-oh. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> what is that? I, I mean, I, I, I do recognize that I'm at, I'm at Fox TV. I, uh, <laughs> a sense of loss. A sense of loss. But it, it's very <sighs> specific. No, 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 no let, let, let me move on. <laughs> it's a sense of loss. It's as if um, he may be thinking more about what he's lost and not still taking full advantage of what he still has. <laughs> this, this... W- I don't want to create a subgenre for Jesse Waters' show or a, a subsection for Jesse Waters' show, but this on the heels of having a murderous mob hitman come on to talk about Hunter Biden. Yeah, that's a lot of hours. To, it's a lot of hours in the week to fill, but, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe think anew and act anew in the new year. Chris, that brings us to our style section where oh, yes. oh, first yes. up, we have a piece in The Atlantic. The real reason for marriage polarization. What is it? Banning banning abortion has made dating political. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and yes. the image is a wedding cake severed in half with a bride on one side and a groom on the other. The writer Adam Sewer. Sewer. Sewer uh, is writing this piece to denounce, to attack a, a Washington Post editorial that lamented the lack of marriage between ideologically different people and how the gender divide where you have the Republican Party gets more male, the Democratic Party gets more female is not good. And it's not good, right? That's, it's not good to, ha- to deepen the tribalism and polarization. And it's not good for one party to be... We used to, in politics, talk about the Democrats as the mommy party and the Republicans as the daddy party which is to say Democrats em- emphasize nurturing issues, emphasized caring issues, whereas Republicans prioritized harder issues on the economy, on crime, on national defense. But that didn't mean that one party was just mommies and one party was just daddies. And if you don't have intermarriage, if you don't have households where people of different ideological viewpoints come together, you don't have opportunities for political fluidity, right? You don't, you don't recombinate enough. And this 
You can even point to Charles Murray's work in Coming Apart about what happens when you have stovepiping of marriage groups. And it's certainly worth noting, but how do you pronounce his last name? Serwer? Serwer. Serwer says, basically, and I know this is a somewhat unfair characterization, says, why are you complaining about the lack of intermarriage when women have no choice but to reject Republicans because Republicans want to ban abortion. By the way, this comes on the heels of decades of research showing that Republicans and Democrats intermarried at enormous rates 50 years ago, and that has been declining over the past 50 years because people, of course, the political polarization in the country has increased enormously as religious affiliation has declined and one takes the place of the other. Amen. That the you you shall have no other gods before me said said those tablets and this is an example of political idolatry putting the wrong thing in the wrong place as as the man said there are no actual atheists in adult life the everybody worships you just get to choose what you worship and of course if you worship politics it will curdle your life it will corrode your life and the the lives of people around you because that's not where it belongs. It's a means to an end, not an end unto itself. And that was sort of a more serious style section item that we than we usually do. But um, but you're going to make up for it right worry. now. Don't you're going to make up for it right um, now. The the messenger reports that chess tournament winner defecated in bathtub uh, may have used you know uh, massage device. Uh, the cheap officials say. Cover your ears, um, children. Cover your ears. Chinese chess champion was stripped of his title and prize money after allegedly defecating into a hotel uh, bathtub come on. to get rid of a device come on. he'd put you know where to help him cheat, officials said. Yang Chenlong, 48, won the amateur Jiangui or Chinese chess competition in Lingshui, Hainan province on December 17th. However, when he checked out of the hotel the next morning, a member of staff found his bathtub was soiled. Well, first of all, I think our real takeaway here has to be that the Chinese are getting ahead of the West in chess cheating technology. And this is this 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 um, uh, rectal gap has to be closed. American leaders have to take this seriously. First, first, those first vibes and then Taiwan. Chris. That brings us to our obsessions of the week. And mine was a report in Mediaite on a study from Syracuse University's Newhouse School of Public Communication finding that it gives us a percentage of the number of American journalists who identify as Republicans. And that number is 3.4%. And it notes that when the first iteration of the study came out over 50 years ago, 35.5% of respondents said they were Democrats, 25.7% said they were Republicans, and 32.5% said they were independents. The percentage that call themselves Democrats or independents have bounced around over the years with the proportion of Democrats reaching a high of 44.1% in 1992. Republicans, on the other hand, have seen their ranks steadily decline, with the only exception being a 1.6% bump between 1992 and 2002. So, you know, it shows. We can tell. We didn't really need the numbers to prove it, but now we know. It is obvious. 
may I poo-poo this study briefly? You may. I, 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 you would expect you know, nothing less Chris, from me. This is a good case of like, we know it's true, even if the methods were bad. Well, so first of all, it's a self-selecting group of individuals who are participating. And we know about Republican. So everything that's true about the larger population will be true about the population of journalists, which is to say, Republicans are going to have lower response rates than Democrats. And when you have a self, and, and by the way, if you're a Republican journalist and you feel that you might be targeted where you work because of your beliefs, then you would be even less likely to want to proclaim your worldview. That's number one. Number two, who works in journalism? People with college degrees. And also, it's more, so it's more college educated than the population as a whole by a substantial as a whole by a substantial degree. It's also more female than the population as a whole by a substantial degree. It's it's a, not a, an inconsiderable difference. Women and college educated women are among the most democratic people in the country. So I totally agree with you that this is something we know to be true about. And I uh, I would encourage everyone to buy Broken News now available in paperback. Uh, where I break down the demography on this stuff about urban versus rural, about blue state versus red state, male versus female, about explaining the concentration of Democrats in the in the media. But and while I agree wholeheartedly with your assessment about it's something we know whether we know, but just as a caution, the numbers, the it was the, it's down, you know, 0.4 of this and that of that. No, just this is this is something that you can just know is true, but I don't think survey work is going to be particularly useful here. What What is your obsession? Oh, what is my obsession? That's a great question. My obsession, oh, this is a very interesting to me. Speaking of statistical error, this was caught by Brad Palumbo writing in the National Review. And do you remember Thomas Piquetet? Piquette. Oh, of course. Of course. Okay. So for younger listeners, in around the panic of 2008, the work of a French economist, Thomas Piketty, who had written a doorstop, this enormous tome of a book about income inequality. And I want to see what its name was. I can't remember what its name was. But anyway, he wrote this book and it was, if to, to stay in the French, we will say it was a cause célèbre. And it was, the emphasis on income inequality was intense. And Piketty added the, the odor of acad academic legitimacy with, with his book. And particularly the claim, and I'm going to get to the claim, that it was the, the okay, PKT's widely reported 2003 study, for example, found that since 1962, the income share earned by the top 1% more than doubled. Okay, that was a, something that you heard and read repeatedly during the panic of 2008, or certainly in the aftermath and the recession that followed the panic of 2008. And what these researchers at the University of Chicago writing in the Journal of Political Economy, found was, it was not what Piketty had said, because the tax return, the, the data that he was citing, he did not include government transfers and government transfers, welfare benefits programs that help, that are designed to help poor and working class people. 
and they did not uh, account for non-taxable job benefits like health insurance and retirement plans. So Piquete leaves all that out and focuses just on earned income, what, what the reported income is. And, the, and so here's the finding. Rather than doubling, they find that the share of income earned by the top 1% increased by only two-tenths of a percentage point since 1962. So I'm not saying that income inequality is not real. I do think, by the way, that the financial focus on inequality is insufficient, that talking about the strength of communities, the strength of families, the strength of where, and by the way, everyone should read my friend and colleague's book, Alienated America, Tim Carney, as well as the aforementioned Charles Murray coming apart. There inequality of experience in America is a serious problem, right? We have weak communities, we have weak families, and this, of course, hits poor people much harder than it does rich people. They, they have less cushion. So the income inequality is real, and inequality of environment is real. All, all Chris, true. we should also mention the, the relatively new book that's out by Melissa Kearney, The Two-Parent Privilege, how Americans stopped getting married and started falling behind, which is essentially about how income levels matter less than having two married parents. And the I'm trying the the I'm I can't remember whose it is, and I know it's one of my colleagues, and I'm sorry right now. The success sequence: if you get a high school diploma before you get married, if you get married before you have children. The likelihood of living in poverty in America today is not is non-existent. Basically, it's it's a one percent or less of people who follow what uh, the, this economist calls the success sequence live in poverty. And but I don't I don't mean to say that income inequality is not real. I'm just saying there's a lot of deeper things in it. My my point in in I'm obsessing over this because of that same thing that I alluded to in that media-eyed article about the percentage of Republicans in newsrooms. When you see a really appealing statistic, the more you want it, the more appealing it is to you, the tougher you should be on yourself as a journalist in granting yourself the privilege to use it, right? So if the, my, my rule is, if I read something and it makes me feel bad or it makes me feel depressed, I should be more willing to use it or hear it. And if it, something makes me feel really good and it agrees with all of my thinking, I should be more skeptical. So this is a, a just your 50th reminder of this podcast. What you see, if you like it, you should judge it more harshly and more stringently than you would other things. Chris, it is time for my favorite section of the week, and that is reader mm. mail. And we have mm -hmm. a note from Mark Troy of Encino, California, and he writes Encino man. a note to you. Hi, Chris. I listened to your podcast for the first time today and enjoyed it very much. I've heard you. I've heard both you and Eliana on the commentary podcast, and that's how I found this. I may have misunderstood you, but I believe you're using the word harumph incorrectly to express what? disagreement with something. As shown in this very short clip from Blazing Saddles. Harumph signifies agreement, usually thoughtless agreement no, 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 or concurrence no, 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 with no. something. 
I use the term when I'm working on a multi-party legal case and a whole bunch of individuals are represented by their own attorneys who are all former federal prosecutors from the same U.S. attorney's office. At group meetings, someone will say something and then the rest of them will all agree with and give high praise to the statement. I call them the harumph club. Please take a look at the clip and see if I married a harumph. Happy New Year and keep up the good work. Okay, well, we got to play the clip. And by the way, from the funniest movie perhaps ever made. We must do something about this immediately, immediately, immediately. Harumph, 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 harumph. I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Get the governor harumph. Harumph. You watch your ass. All right. Okay. So you, that is Governor Lepetamane, Governor Tomain, talking about the, it's Round Rock. What's the name of the town in Blazing Saddles? But anyway, we got to do something as he says, to save our phony baloney jobs. The harumph, Mr. Troy, and I say this at risk, it sounds like a potential prosecution given your connections in the criminal justice world. The harumph is a negative. You're harumphing something that you disagree with. It is a cousin to humbug, humbug, harumph. What Governor Lepetamane is asking his lackeys to do is join him in harumphing the the problem in Round Rock, the problem of the townspeople and the situation that the, this is this is a negative. They're doing it to agree with him and suck up. But it would be like as if he said, wouldn't you all say humbug? And there's one guy who doesn't say humbug. And he says, I didn't get a humbug out of that guy. So he humbugs. Chris, it is now time for your favorite time of the week. Where. I am forced to say something nice, but as always, you shall lead by example. I am, I, I know that I'm in love with The Athletic and the, and the return of well-written sports coverage. Uh, it's, been, it's been tough out there, and The Athletic is, is, is doing a lot of good. I point to this wonderful piece. I love behind-the-scenes stuff. I just love when, when journalists go and tell you the untold story. Writer Dan Duggan, ever wonder what NFL travel is like? Take a peek behind the scenes with the New York Giants. And Duggan answers all of those questions that sports fans have about what life is really like on the road for a traveling football team. Who gets to sit in the first class seats on the plane? Who buys dinner? Where do they go? What do they do? This was excellent, non-sensational. And just my my favorite kind, one of my very favorite kinds of, of journalism behind the scenes done well. Kudos to you, to Dan Duggan. In the first class seats. The best players, at least for the Giants. The way that they do it basically is they charter a plane and there's first class, business class and coach. And the starting roster gets to be up front and then... For others, they they have to go to the back. But I did note, and I say this as a large format human being, no player has to sit in a middle seat. If you're in the back, you get a row to yourself. So at least you can do that weird, awkward, diagonal lean. Chris, my favorite was so easy this week. It was a New York Times piece on Willis Gibson, the 13-year-old boy believed to be the first to, quote, beat Tetris. And I and that beat is in quotes because apparently the game just freezes if you beat it. 
And the video of this adorable kid is amazing when he beats this game and we have got to play it for people. This is the, we can only play the sound, of course, but it's incredible watching this kid beat Tetris. And he says, oh my God, he re- Willis repeats in a high pitch in video of his triumph that he uploaded to YouTube on Tuesday as he collapses into his chair. I can't feel my fingers. <laughs> oh, oh, oh my God. That so when so when you beat Tetris, you just get to the highest level they have. It, and it, then... it freezes. It like you know, it can't do the game anymore. That is th- this this puts him maybe even above the Rubik's cube instant people. This is very because you got to. Awesome. I, I assume I assume this was many hours of work. And there's there's quotes from experts. It's never been done by a human before, said Vince Clementi, the president of the classic Tetris World Championship, adding it's basically something that everyone thought was impossible until a couple of years ago. In the competitive Tetris world, the object is generally to outscore your opponents rather than outlast them. I hope nobody checks his bathtub. Exactly. Exactly. That is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.